Hello, everyone. I am your co-host, Ian Saxine, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Tiffany Link. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm great. Yourself? I am good. Of course, we are all a little sad here at Maine Historical and probably far beyond um, due to the recent loss of historian Bill Barry, who many people knew either personally or probably from the many different publications and talks, even just research assistance that he provided people when they would come into the library. So, Bill was a real one. I have many fond memories of Bill, like I suspect almost anybody who has had any dealings with the Maine Historical Society for many years has. Yeah, I, I think to many people, Bill was Maine Historical. And uh, I think he was a real access point for a lot of different people who may not have otherwise you know, really come to MHS in a significant manner. But I, I think he really opened the society up to a lot of individuals over the years. And, you know, he, he left a real legacy here. So he's it's very beloved, I think is a good way to describe him. Do you have a favorite Bill Berry memory? I don't know that I really have just one memory, but Bill... And I worked a lot of Saturdays alone together in the reading room. Um, Saturdays, oddly enough, are one of our lowest visit days. And so we weren't mm. always, you know, super busy with patrons or inundated. And so uh, it was a day where sometimes we just had a lot of chats. And sometimes that was just about life. Sometimes it was about travel. And sometimes it was about history. And um he was always just so kind and willing to listen and to share. And I think one of the best things was that he was just like that from the moment you met him, you know, it wasn't someone that you took a long time to warm up to or took a long time up to you. So I, I think a lot of people, like I said, found him to be a really welcoming access point um, to research at Maine Historical, or even just, you know, being a member or coming to programming or, or what have you. I think he welcomed people very openly. I know that was my experience with Bill, and he was one of the first people at Maine Historical who was offering me guidance and advice when I was doing my dissertation research long ago uh, <laughs> in the in 2009 and the the early 2010s. And he, I'd spend many days at you know one of the tables, and Bill would keep coming over with newspaper clippings and stories and thoughts and showing the the sort of kind of of interest in my work but also just sort of me as a person that you know he was such a such a great part of who he was uh yeah. he was he was just interested in people and he he never lost sight of that part of his work yeah he brought such a unique lens i mean he was so interested in niche groups if you want to call it that like artists or sort of prohibition era things whether it was like uh, you know history of prostitution or what you know if, if you had yeah. a weird question or like who would ever know this bill usually knew something <laughs> so that that was nice yeah he had i know he did some work about like nightlife and 20th century Portland, including like the emergence of like a gay community, uh, but then just in general, yeah. like broader sort of nightlife culture and all the rest yes. after, yeah. especially after World War II. And he was, yeah, he was an endlessly interesting and interested person. 
yeah, he could be interested in anything, you know, yeah. that was the nice thing. Like, like I said, we just, I think that's what I just remember about him is we worked a lot of Saturdays where there wasn't a whole lot going on and it was easy to just have a really nice conversation with him about yeah. whatever was happening. Yeah. Well, Bill Barry, you will be missed. Yeah, I very much so. Yeah. It, it's yeah. um like I said, I think beloved is just a yeah. really good way to do. never forgotten. Tiffany, what are we going to do today? So today um, we are going to be interviewing Alexandra Montgomery about the proclamation of 1763. And, um, I think that is a good intersect with both of our interests, both a little. It is. And uh, hopefully kind of will highlight what a turning point in America's history that was. Absolutely. And then we'll get some good uh, U.S., Canada, Maine, uh, Nova Scotia comparisons in this maritime region that we share. So uh, folks who wanted to hear more about our neighbors to the north, fear not, because that's part of this too. Time to start. Let's do this. guest today is Alexandra Montgomery, a returning friend of the pod. She is now coming to us in her capacity as the manager for the Center for Digital History at the George Washington Presidential Library at Mount Vernon. Alla, welcome to Mainly History. Thanks so much, Ian and Tiffany, for having me on. This is a lot of fun. Always happy to be here. Welcome. Do you get to talk very much sort of Nova Scotia and Northeastern Maritime stuff in your new uh, Mount Vernon roles? Oh, gosh. Well, I, you know, I try real hard to make it happen. Um, not necessarily the most natural fit, but I uh, I work hard. Did... I will say that uh, George Washington was not known for his particular interest in the Northeast uh, is one thing I'll say about the man. Did he ever go to Nova Scotia? No. Okay. He never went to Nova Scotia. And as far as I know, he was never in... You two can correct me if I'm wrong about this on how far, far north he went on his tour, but I don't think he ever went as far north as what's now Maine. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Because he made it to New Hampshire. He lived free and then did not die, but then he like turned around, I think. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I mean, it makes sense. Maine was part of Massachusetts then. And so it would have just been redundant. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't think... Um, I mean, there was the relatively recent book about his tour by my grad school advisor, uh, Tim Breen, which, sorry, Tim, I have not read, but I think it was called like Washington's Travels or Washington's Journey. Um, we can, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But my recollection from talking to Tim is like Washington, this was kind of a chore and he, he didn't love doing this thing. And so I could see where he would have been like, okay, I checked the boxes, all, all the states visited, except for those delinquents in Rhode Island who didn't ratify the constitution, yet I'm going home. Yep. As yeah. I said earlier, before we started recording, recording uh, Rhode Island knows what it did. Uh, it did. But yeah, no, my general read of Washington is that he was not much for travel in general. Uh, he was kind of a homebody. He was sort of constantly complaining about not being at Mount Vernon, had to be bullied into a second term. So that is not surprising at all. 
Today, though, we are talking about something before the American Revolution. And uh, Ella, this I know from our, our time hobnobbing as like grad students and everything. I mean, the 1760s, really, this is where your heart truly, truly lies, is it not? Uh, it is. It is. Yeah. No, I'm very much a uh, 1750s and 60s person and really a 1760s person. It's that mm -hmm. it's that interwar period that I just I really love. I like to think for our own scholarship outlet that 1763 is the year that you and I like I walk up to you forward in time and like high five you <laughs> and then like you continue on it's uh, the baton pass move. It, yeah. it really is it is the baton pass where I'm like 1765 meh <laughs> that's what I'll pick you up in like 1770 and then I'll move it I'll yeah. move it forward so oh exactly this is a common problem I think with the 1760s is that it's in this weird gray zone in between folks that are really like colonial historians and then folks that are early Republican America historians it often sort of becomes orphaned between these two blocks which is part of why I love it so much yes yes um the my last thought on that note is actually I was reviewing a uh like a, a historiographical survey of the 18th century for both of early Americanists and I think British historians and it's called like writing the the 18th century and this historian looked at like all these journal articles and William and Mary Quarterly and others um and his name um Bernard that's his name Trevor Bernard Oh, uh, oh, yes, yes, I'm familiar with his work. I think the real problem, he he works in the Caribbean, like as a scholar of like the Caribbean stuff, but he he's a modernist. Um, and so it was a really like great book. But like, I think one of the beefs that he had, though, that to me, uh, I thought wasn't as fair as much is just he's very much a modernist interested in eight, the 18th century looking towards the age of revolutions. And so like, books that aren't and articles that aren't interested in looking at like stuff before 1750 in anticipation of the revolutionary era and modernity. He's like, what are you doing? And so in my response, it's in this round table that's coming out in the JER. Um, I was like, you know, this is kind of just a matter of interpret. Like, I'm sorry, dude, like some of us are early modernists and we just happen to share journal space. And it's not that one is like better than the other, but I'm sorry, there's a lot of like 1720 stuff that has nothing to do with looking ahead to modernity or the revolutionary era. But of course, the 1760s is a, is a different matter. So I don't know. Well, it's this beautiful pivot point. And, and, and to your point that you just said, it's sort of the start and end date for two separate historiographies, really. Um, you know, a lot of books, yours included, end 1765, a lot of these colonial framework books. I'm thinking also of Jeffers Lennox's first book, um, Homelands and Empires, also ends yeah. in the 1760s. And then scholars who are really interested in the age of revolutions, revolutionary moment into early republic, um, Canadian scholars as well, or interested in the loyalist diaspora, will tend to start sometime in the 1760s. And what that usually means then is that for books on the one end, you get a couple of pages in epilogue and the books on the other end, you get a couple of pages in introduction and you miss out on dealing with a thing in itself. I think that's a really good point. I guess, Tiffany, you're really, you know, in your own interests, you're very much a revolutionary era person. And so like how in your own interest for that, uh, sort of how far back do you tend to go? I probably go back further than most just because um, my revolution interest is more is more the setup and not so much like the war and the battles. And I, 
must confess that I quickly lose interest when we get to early Republic. Uh, for me, it's more about the motivation mm -hmm. to do this thing that had never really been done before, not to like make it seem more mythical than <laughs> it should. But I think sometimes people forget like how out on a limb some of these individuals were when they really didn't have to be. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. um, why does that start? And a lot of it is economic and a lot of it goes back to the colonial economic structure. And that is exactly part of the proclamation of 1763, whether it's saving Britain money by not starting another war or preventing the colonies from further securing, you know, their own economic futures by having more access to agriculture and raw materials, um, that they could be a little more self-sufficient than relying on England for trade. You know, it, it, it really starts there. So, um, I don't always go back a lot further than that, but I, I think certainly the proclamation is where you can kind of always launch sort of the story of the revolution. And I think I, I really enjoy studies that look at identity. And I truly think that that, like you said, is a pivot point where people kind of start thinking of themselves as Americans. You start seeing the word Americans in text, whether it's communication between people, um, you know, maybe not so much like newspapers, but it, it shows up, you know, I mean, there's, you know, they act like people wouldn't have known what Paul Revere meant if he said the British are coming. That's BS. Like yeah. they were already referring to themselves as Americans at the, you know, very least they were referring to themselves as Massachusetts or Mainers or New Hampshireites or whatever. But um, they were using those words, you know, in general correspondence with one another, British, American, English, you know. So, uh, and, and this is, I think, kind of where that cognitive change starts. Yeah, so. no, I think, I think that's, and to your point, I was, um, we have a, a visitor coming into the library today, so we pulled a bunch of documents. And one of the documents we pulled is we have the 1757 letter from Washington to Governor Dinwiddie, where he uses the term Americans. Um, yeah. You know, he's complaining about not being able to get a British commission. And he says it's not fair that Americans um, aren't able to have this equality with British. And he uses that term. And it's right. In Absolutely. Crucial yeah. moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating because it's still often used to refer to indigenous people. At in that time, right? Oftentimes when True. British sources are talking about Americans, certainly in Britain, they often will will talk about indigenous folks, although certainly not always. So that's that's interesting. So to, it, yeah, that's right. And so that's, of course, a, a reason why so many historians, whichever early modern, modern, whatever side of the 18th century we're interested in, we can all agree on the significance of 1763. And I think in a way that a lot of normies out there who uh, who are not professional historians, I think that 1763 might be one of those underappreciated landmarks. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I don't think anything yeah. that would have happened after that if this, at least not in the same way or not as quickly as it did. I mean, this is, it's truly a pivot point and like a launch, yeah. you know, for, for many things that came after. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would go so far as to say is if I had to pick exactly one 18th century pivot point, it would be 1763. And I think that's extremely defensible. Yeah. yeah. So could you then on this 260th anniversary of the proclamation of 1763, as it is often popularly known, um, Alec, could you give us some background uh, for maybe people who are struggling to remember their schooling 
quite apart from this proclamation of 1763 that we're going to talk about, what is going on in the Atlantic world? Like, what are some of these big events that are happening in 1763 that are leading up to this royal proclamation we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So the royal proclamation itself is, is an attempt to answer a problem. And the problem is the problem of success. So we have the Seven Years' War, um, which was not seven years, but I still prefer it as the term, uh, starts about 1754 uh, in North America, and it ends, uh, the, the fighting for practical purposes in, in North America ends about 1760, 1761, but it ends formally in 1763 with the Treaty of Paris, not to be confused with the other Treaty of Paris that ended the American Revolution. I really think they should have chosen another spot. It's extremely confusing. But so that Treaty of Paris uh, came out uh, publicly a couple of months, I think, prior to the Royal Proclamation. Um, and what that treaty does is it confirms what everybody already knew, which is that French, the French had lost hard. The French had lost very hard. Uh, the British were taking ownership of all of the French claims um, in North America, emphasize claims. They didn't necessarily have the ability to rule over these spaces. But so we're talking about, you know, New France or what we think of as Canada. Uh, we're talking about the area sort of down into the Mississippi. Um, and then we're also talking about the Floridas um, as well. So this really gigantic swathe of land and also some Caribbean colonies um, to give them their due, although I always I, I feel like I always neglect them. But uh, but basically, the presence what... of multiple Floridas, I find very alarming. <laughs> <laughs> They've multiplied. Yeah, I know um, this is East and West Florida. Yeah. We um, should hat tip. France gave away its claims barely occupied west of the Mississippi River to Spain as a sort of like, sorry for getting well, you involved in this losing minute, war. Yeah. <laughs> There's some very confusing backroom dealing uh, mm -hmm. that happens. Please these, stay friends. Here's Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, the practical effect of it is that Britain now has a claim to basically everything east of the Mississippi. So it has, you know, overnight, you know, double, triple, uh, quadrupled its land claims uh, in North America. And then the practical question becomes, you know, the dog has caught the car. What the heck do we do with all of this? There are lots of practical concerns. What do we do with all of these French-speaking Catholics? What do we do, do with all these indigenous nations that don't necessarily, like, accept us as a governing body? What do we do, what do, we do just practically? How do we govern this space or pretend to govern this space? Um, so the Royal Proclamation, then, is it's the answer. And it's really, it's doing three things. Uh, the first thing it's doing is setting up new governments. So it sets up the new colonies, the other new or rebranded colonies of Quebec, uh, the colonies of East and West Florida. So East Florida is kind of like Alabama, Gulf Coast area, and West Florida is really the peninsula of Florida, um, as well as uh, Granada um, in, the, uh, in the Caribbean. So it's doing that. It is also setting up a system by which bounty lands are being given over to veterans of the Seven Years' War. So it lays out a schema for you know folks if you fought and you're captain, you get three thousand acres. If you fought and you're a you know private man, you get fifty acres. Things like that. And then finally, and maybe probably most famously, it's establishing what gets known as the Proclamation Line, which runs sort of up the ridge of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, uh, it, it gets it gets messed with later, but in, this, in, the, in the 63 variant, um, kind of runs up the ridge of the Appalachian Mountains until it hits the borders of Quebec. Um, so Quebec and Nova Scotia are not included in this line situation. And everything west of that line is reserved territory. Uh, white settlers are not to take up lands over there. That land is sometimes referred to as being reserved for the Indians, quote, heavy quotes on that. 
So those are really, those are the three things that are happening in this proclamation. And the, to be clear, the king issuing this is George III, who's still king during the American Revolution and during the musical Hamilton, perhaps most <laughs> familiarly. Uh, the singing king, as I sometimes refer to him, it's my students. So that guy. Yes. And this comes out in October, should also be clear. Right. Okay. So yeah, it does a lot. So um, I think a, a reasonable question people would have then from all of this is like, well, okay. So the king doing this, um, why would the uh, British monarch want to draw this line? Um, and presumably, for, for various reasons we'll get into, why would the king be so interested in doing this? Wouldn't the king want to just say, like, go forth, do kind of manifest destiny, expansion, my my loyal subjects, et cetera? So there are uh, two ways to think about the purpose of the proclamation line and why the king and Privy Council and all of these other sort of folks of the, the, the wicked planning class sitting around in London uh, would kind of want to make this thing happen. Uh, the first one, uh, which is often cited, is this idea of attempting to prevent future wars with Native people. So one of the other things that happens sort of right at the end of the Seven Years' War is what's called Pontiac's Rebellion, Pontiac's War, or the war called Pontiac's, another war with no good names, where a coalition of Indigenous nations uh, rises up against the British uh, due to various fairly good reasons. Um, it's put down... Technically, I don't think it, the, the the piece isn't signed until after the proclamation comes out, but it was kind of winding down by the time this came out. And often this is seen as a way to try to prevent that, to prevent the cost and the violence and the bloodshed of another war with indigenous people by making it clear where the line is between settler expansion uh, and indigenous lands. Other reason is an attempt to still keep settlers in one spot, but in this case, it is an attempt to keep white settlers closer to the reach of Atlantic commerce, um, to sort of pin them to the coasts. I have, um, I brought notes. I have lots of good quotes. Excellent. Um, <laughs> uh, and so basically it's an attempt to engineer the kind of empire that some folks in power at this point want, which is an empire that's where settlers, where white settlers, where, where your American people are focused on coastal transatlantic trade um, and then there are sort of a separate se um, understanding with uh, indigenous people who are also considered to be subjects of the empire um, and not really necessarily mixing these those two economic spheres. Okay. And I think in case we didn't make it clear already, like they're concerned about the indigenous conflict due to the fact that most groups sided with the French during the French and Indian War. And so, as you said, they aren't exactly happy to be under British rule, but that's primarily why you know they had a, a maybe a slightly better relationship with the french than a lot of indigenous groups had with the the british who were up and down the coast at this point um but yes. yeah um and, and then also like you said yes the the colonial economy it was just you know like they were there to be imports to buy from the british and then produce like provide them with the natural resources and it was such like a tight relationship you know they weren't really supposed to be trading with other countries they weren't really being expected to do a lot of their own manufacturing or um you know supplying a lot of goods for themselves that were supposed to being be bought from england and so um i just i think sometimes people miss that like how yeah. sort of restrictive the economy was at that time and how it limited your sort of expansion options were 
Mm-hmm. I was going to say famously, this is what, you know, when Adam Smith writes Wealth of Nations, which comes out coincidentally in 1776, you know, he's making this argument fundamentally for what we'd later call kind of, you know, free trade, relatively speaking. And it's mostly, again, saying it's kind of stupid to have this restrictive uh, commercial arrangement uh, like Massachusetts and Georgia have with Britain, where, yeah, they can't buy foreign imports. It has to be from the British. And it's very, it's very restrictive. And of course, as Allo well knows and probably knows more than than both of us. It leads to all kinds of black market activity, but all kinds of commercial dislocations and all the rest as well. Yeah, and I wanted to uh, read one of my favorite quotes uh, on this that I brought with me. So this is from a document called uh, Hints Relative to the Division and Government of the Conquered and Newly Acquired Countries in America. Uh, It is not dated, but it is from before the issuance or, or draft of the proclamation. And it's generally attributed to Henry Ellis who was the uh, governor of both Georgia and Nova Scotia, although he never took up his post in Nova Scotia. Um, And it's a document that a lot of it was then incorporated into the proclamation when it's released. And this is the relevant quote. It might also be necessary to fix upon some line for a Western boundary to our ancient provinces, beyond which our people should not at present be permitted to settle. Hence, as their numbers increase, they would immigrate to Nova Scotia or to the provinces on the Southern frontier, where they would be useful to their mother country, instead of planting themselves in the heart of America, out of the reach of government, and where, from the great difficulty of procuring European commodities, they would be compelled to to commence manufactures to the infinite prejudice of Britain, which I think as neatly as anything expresses that idea, right? That if we let them, you know, go into the Ohio, God forbid, um, they're going to, our whole mercantile system of controlled commerce is going to break down. And what's the point of colonies if we're not doing that? The British were onto something by not wanting uh, to create the state of Ohio. Um, I have more quotes about that too. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I want to also emphasize about Please this do. is the, um, the artificiality of that line. You know, I think sometimes we very easily, or I mean, we in a broad sort of popular cultural sense, mm-hmm. conflate it with the idea of the reason it's there is to protect indigenous homelands. Um, I've seen people push this too far in the other direction that it's like uh, the British are being good guys. You know, they're creating a preserved area for indigenous people. But there is nothing about that line that says anything about indigenous homelands. There are still lots and lots and lots of powerful indigenous nations to the east of that line. Um, and the the Royal Proclamation basically like throws its hands up in the air and doesn't care about those folks. Um, and there's also nothing that necessarily corresponds to indigenous boundaries about exactly where that line falls. So it's it's a completely artificial line. And I think we should be careful not to give the Brits too much credit for that part, part of it. I'm glad you bring this up because there really is one of my favorite historical debates that I think is very relevant is the one about basically, yes, the the ramifications of the proclamation of 1763 for different indigenous groups as well as uh, as colonies. Right. And as you well summed up, especially those of us interested in like indigenous history there are a bunch of like reasonable ways to interpret the proclamation of 1763 at least in its impact uh and certainly it's in in its intent you're absolutely right we should start it's totally colonial hubris where king george to quote in here is in drawing the line on the uh appalachian mountains explicitly says uh, to the, to any extent that uh, he's interested in protecting Dominion, quote, for the use of said Indians, it's very much claiming these Indians as British subjects. Mm-hmm. 
which of course the overwhelming majority had no understanding of themselves to be. And this is something that is a theme in my own work, which need not detain us much here. But like, you know, <laughs> one thing that I like to, to bring up is that the British were often, British officials were often willing to distinguish between indigenous property and indigenous sovereignty. And they were interested in certain, in certain cases, protecting indigenous rights to unsold lands, but they would still say, of course, they are our subjects and they're, you know, tech, they're technically like within the protection of the monarchy. And so, which of course has various practical consequences. So along with this impact though, I think one thing, and I'm really interested to hear your take on this, people who've heard of the proclamation are familiar with the line, right? But the other proviso in there, uh, if at any time any of the said Indians should be inclined to dispose of said lands, the same shall be purchased only for us mm -hmm. in our name at some public meeting or assembly of the said Indians to be held for that purpose by the governor or commander in chief of our colony, respectively, in which they shall lie. Yes, and as you're, that's a great point because that really is the fourth thing uh, that the proclamation is doing that I should have emphasized is that it is it's creating a new foundation for um, negotiation and and uh, purchase from indigenous people that still continues to have legal standing um, in Canada, for example, and the and the U.S. Although less so thanks to later U.S. Supreme Court decisions, uh, most notably McIntosh of 1823, but. So this is where there's a line above where it says in order to, because there was various abuses, that says great frauds and abuses have been committed in purchasing lands of the Indians to the great prejudice of our interests, the kings, and the great satisfaction of the Indians, no more private land sales are allowed. Right. So private individual colonists are not allowed to buy indigenous land directly from, you know, the Cherokees or uh, the Haudenosaunee or anybody else. So. Folks. Yeah, and this becomes the foundation through a somewhat circuitous route of why it's the federal government that has jurisdiction uh, theoretically yes. in the Constitution over negotiations with indigenous people rather than states. Correct. And we should credit, I believe, the scholar who's sort of most elevated the salience of this. And I find it convincing, but I'm interested in how you interpret it. Stuart Banner, yeah. uh, a legal historian uh, who wrote How the Indians Lost Their Land, points to the fact that uh, after the proclamation of 1763, when white settlers are buying land, what it means is they're buying land and their deed comes from like the governor of Pennsylvania or something. Before this point, if we look at, say, Maine, or, you know, for example, uh, there's a lot of colonists who they might not like indigenous people, but their property traces back to indigenous title and they recognize that. And so whatever they might think about uh, the Wabanaki, they have some sort of basic pragmatic reason to sort of acknowledge the indigenous past of the land and the fact that, hey, indigenous people own their land. Uh, after the proclamation of 1763, that indigenous past is erased. And so says uh, Banner. I find that fairly convincing uh, from the documentary evidence that I've seen for Maine. But so, Alla, I wasn't sure, especially you work more on the Nova, Sky, uh, the Nova yeah. Scotia Canadian side of things. Did this matter as much in Canada? That's a complicated question because that is still very much the, the, the 1763 proclamation forms the foundation of Indigenous treaty making and land rights in Canada still. Mm. Um, and 
what it has the function of doing is making all land crown land like it's only the crown that can purchase or or acquire indigenous rights um, through the treaty making period. I generally agree with Banner. I think I think that it has it has it has mixed impact, right? I think there are ways in which um, having something to appeal to, to directly to the highest echelons of government rather than being subject to the whims of individual colonists can be very powerful for indigenous nations. It can also, as you say, completely divorce the question of land from actual relationships with indigenous people. And so I think that it has very different impacts in very different places. I think that we need to separate out the impact of it sort of po in areas that are being newly like rested or acquired or, you know, coerced away from indigenous nations after the treat the proclamation versus before the treat with the proclamation. Like I think that it's Nova Scotia is a weird case because most of that land acquisition is done, what I would say, illegally. Um, mm. uh, I think that in Nova, most in the case of Nova Scotia, most of the things that that government is up to is in violation of the Brits' own understandings of uh, their treaty relationships. So I think Nova Scotia is kind of a special case, but it plays out very differently in other parts of what's now Canada. So I would really want to separate out those two questions. Okay. I think these are details worth getting into. So because for contrast, so this is where, I mean, the weirdly enough, I mean, between 1763 and 1775, the main Nova Scotia divide is in some ways, politically, they're closer than they ever would be again. And yet, uh, at the time of this proclamation, there's still the different impact, namely because the governor of Massachusetts doesn't sign a peace treaty with the Wabanakis of Maine or, or New Brunswick, who sided with the French during the Seven Years' War and just says, functionally, uh, we won, you lost. If you don't stop fighting, we will we will literally kill you all and it won't bother us. So yeah, there's, a, there's a conquest model that comes into play in the 60s yeah. in both regions. Um, yeah. You know, it, it extreme um, disadvantage of those indigenous nations. And again, one that I think is not actually, uh, wouldn't hold up if it had been interrogated in by the British standards, but in, in practice, that is what happens. Right. And so for like the Penobscot in particular, they that's the, the big reason that they side with the Americans during the revolution is they would like some sort of regular treaty relation. Yeah. Um, and so this, the proclamation of 1763 in Maine is sort of less, less relevant than uh, in in certain respects, right, than in, than in other parts along of... the borderlands. The relevance of the proclamation, I think, to both Maine and Nova Scotia is not in necessarily in the realm of indigenous rights, because I think in both mm -hmm. cases, in the case of Maine, it, and it already had sort of an inertia of its own. And in the case of Nova Scotia, like it, they, neither of them are the areas that were most impacted by the sort of on the face of it uh, regulations that are laid out in the proclamation. I think where the impact is, which ends up being sort of differently felt in Maine and Nova Scotia is in the parts of it where part of the express intent of the line is to drive settlement into these regions, to drive white settlement into this, these regions. Um, Which it the, does. I don't know if it would have mattered much for Maine. I mean, it was probably going to get it anyway because of the reduced Wabanaki military ability to sort of defend themselves against all these more people, probably. I don't so, know. The weird thing about Maine is that, well, in Maine, sort of a, you know, east of the Penobscot, you have the problem of the whole the whole Sagadahawk problem, 
where the government of Massachusetts can't actually legally grant land east of the Penobscot. They can grant land, but it has to be confirmed by the crown, and the crown refuses to confirm any of it. So. Why? Uh, because they don't like Massachusetts, basically. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> basically, because Massachusetts is too much trouble. They keep yeah. going back and forth on this. They're like, oh, well, we'll make a new colony and put it there. That'll be way easier. Like, Because they want this area to be settled, but they don't want to deal with Massachusetts. So it creates- That was the Dunbar experiment that I'm yes, really- I'm surprised, honestly, that like they didn't let him do it. The problem, the problem is actually it comes from the Dunbar. So the Dunbar thing is this is the 1720s. So we're back in back in Ian land here um, <laughs> where we have uh, David Dunbar, who is the commissioner of the King's Woods. So his job on paper is to go mark out good trees for masts. And there is this highfalutin idea that, well, OK, go do that. But also there's just too much land in between Boston and Nova Scotia. We need to erect a new colony there in order to manage it properly, because that's where all the good masts are. And that's the important. What's the point of empire if it's not getting good masts for your cool boats? So it's a very fleeting idea. They're going to call it Georgia. This is, of course, pre the Georgia that we all know and question mark love. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's kind of Dunbar doesn't really know this, but it's dead in the water before he even lands. But when he lands, he lands thinking that he's going to be governor of this new colony um, and starts, you know, gathering folks. And he, this immediately gets him into trouble with the big main proprietors, um, uh, of course, the subject of a lot of Ian's work. Um, and it ends up going to a court case. And what the court case decides is uh, so the problem here is in the in the in the Massachusetts Charter, it uh, it makes distinctions between um, so it chunks out Massachusetts into four chunks. There's the former Plymouth Colony and Massachusetts Bay Colony, which are merged um, and are going to be governed together. There is Nova Scotia, which is sort of uh, in the area of interest for Massachusetts until it gets erected into its own separate colony. And then there's this area in between called the Sagadahawk Territory, which is in between the Sagadahawk River, so again, the Kennebec River, um, to about the St. John's River is this really nebulous entity. And in the charter, it says that this land is to be governed by Massachusetts and Massachusetts can grant lands there, but it can't do anything without the permission of the crown. So it's in this like really weird legal situation where it's not, it's, it's kind of part of Massachusetts, but not really fully part of Massachusetts. It's not part of Massachusetts in the same way that like Plymouth Colony is part of Massachusetts. I feel and like they're this, kind of saying like, it's sort of like, if you want to do something with it, it's kind of like fiscally Massachusetts responsibility, Yeah, but we don't really want to give you enough like legal authority to really be able to like do something you know, do too much without yeah. us being able to say it's okay or not. And again, Massachusetts had a very unique charter compared to some of the other colonies at this time where they were able to do a little bit more because of their slightly more democratic form of government mm -hmm. um, than you saw in many other places. So they were this kind of unique problem for Britain combined with like Virginia and to some extent, maybe Pennsylvania and New York, but yeah. Was the Sagadahawk region, was this kind of like having a bank account set up for a child and like limiting <laughs> its access to its funds? I mean, the way that I've always read it is that the plan was to, to take it away from them eventually, that this was yeah. kind of like a stopgap solution. Yeah, like, please yeah. do the work for us. And then yeah. maybe we'll just take all the reward, you know? Because like the key context for this too is like, what's the date of this chart? It's like 1690. 
91. Yeah. So technically most of that land was, was controlled by the French. So they're really, you know, they're, they're delegating responsibilities to territory that they know they practically don't have any control of, um, and have really contested right to. So it's kind of meaningless until at least post 1710, if not more after that. Yeah. And it, I just read it as this weird stopgap measure where they're like, we want to have something in place so that we can like call dibs, but like, we don't trust you or like you. Um, so we want to be, and, and then they just end up never taking it away. But the practical effect of it is that in the 1760s, all of the townships that are granted east of the Penobscot are uh, technically squatter communities. What makes the, for Dunbar for just a moment, because it, uh, it's such a hilarious case that also nobody quite knows what to do with. What makes his case so interesting is that like he he makes a solid case from a bewigged imperialist perspective in the sense where he says, look, um, Massachusetts uh, government and its proprietors, they're bad at their jobs. The indigenous people hate them. It's mostly their fault. Uh, and they haven't achieved anything. And he says at one point, this All is true. like, yeah. And then he says, it's like a dog in the manger. It cannot eat the hay itself, but insists no one else have a turn either. <laughs> but like the people in Massachusetts, all the companies hate Dunmar, Dunbar, partly because he's Irish. Even And even though he's Protestant, people insist he's not. And the governor of Massachusetts, Jonathan Belcher, who's my personal mm. favorite, I know you're like, oh yeah, he noted hater Jonathan Belcher. And so Dunbar gets <laughs> assigned his lieutenant governor out of uh, of New Hampshire. And Belcher spends the entire time antagonizing his underling in the hope, bullying him in the hopes he'll go home and quit. And so at one point, Dunbar gets beat up by a mob who he's trying to stop from illegally logging. And Belcher doesn't really try and find out who did it. And he's writing these letters with like, oh, to be sure, uh, we disapprove of violence. And Dunbar is all like, they beat me up. Like, how dare they? And so- <laughs> Who could have done this? <laughs> yeah. And so Dunbar, I read, um, there's in the New Hampshire Historical Society, there's some of these collections of like the, the Belcher circle. And you see copies of letters Belcher wrote directly to Dunbar being like, you keep threatening to go home, but you never leave. Why don't you just leave? Um, I like, and it's so catty and personal. And then uh, Dunbar takes it to court. And amazingly, the, oh, whatever they name this court that like resolves this dispute. It's like 1731. They basically say, look, uh, Dunbar's not wrong, but it's just like, it's really hard colonizing. And so we have to give these people a longer time to like screw this up. And it's just not worth antagonizing all these basically, you know, irate Bay State, you know, Bay colonists over this. Uh, it's just a bunch of trees anyway. So like, sorry, Dunbar. And then he vanishes from history. Like we don't. Well, I hope he had a good, nice retirement. Um, um I don't know. I don't he know. probably died immediately. It's I'm sure he got beat up more or something. I don't know. I don't know. But apparently he was also like a climber. And so there was like some snobbery about that too. Yeah. But I guess one of the things that I, I'd want to make clear about the, the Maine and Nova Scotia in the 1760s is that uh, driving migration towards both was a stated aim. But mm. because of the long effects of the Dunbar decision, um, Nova Scotia is much better set up. Um, whereas... Massachusetts gets like roadblock upon roadblock upon roadblock thrown up in front of it of their attempts to uh, set, settle Maine in an orderly fashion. 
like they're constantly stymied. Um, it, you know, makes this, it makes an already bad relationship with the board of trade even worse. And That's who it was. The board of trade. It's Thank always you. The board of trade. Yeah. 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 It's always the board of trade. Yes. Um, yeah. So there's this whole scandal. So, um, I, governor, um, uh, Francis Bernard, uh, in the sixties is granted all of Mount desert Island, uh, nice present. Um, and he spends like several years trying to get it confirmed um, and goes completely broke in the process because uh, getting it confirmed would would mean for the Board of Trade giving more power to Massachusetts than they want. So it ends up just it co going completely out of his hands and it's kind of happening at the same time as the Stamp Act and like going through his letters, you can just see him completely unravel as a person um, <laughs> between these two forces. So. <laughs> Scotia becomes kind of like the darling of the point of the proclamation line. It's like, it's kind of, it's the, yeah. success, it's the success story sort of, um, whereas what it ends up doing is just creating chaos um, in Maine and Massachusetts. And I think it's just hard to settle Maine in general. I mean, they kind of bill it as this new frontier after the revolution. And, you know, it, I think there's a lot of reasons why it would be hard to yeah, settle Maine. I mean, Although it's many of those are also true easy. in Nova Scotia. Yeah. Well, that's in true, yeah. cases, you know, I guess the weather's you have not a little great, more the soil like is bad. Coastal it's... access, yeah. you know, in Nova Scotia and maybe not as mountain, you know, like there's, uh, some of Maine is just so rugged as you're moving inland. Like it's just- um, It's a hard sell. Yeah. 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 It is. Whereas like just... in Canada, you have like more, if you're following the river, like you've got Quebec and then you can kind of keep going over, but, and you can get ships down that whole thing. Whereas like the Penobscot, you know, you can only go as far as like Augusta or whatever. So, um, and we know, so the story of Maine post 1763 is a lot of like squatters and just an absolute. It's a mess. From between feuding companies and random squatters and yeah. Alan Taylor's book, um, Liberty Men and Great Proprietors talks about this. Can you tell us a little bit about Nova Scotia post proclamation line 1763? Yeah, totally. So, um, the situation in Nova Scotia. So, so again, like I, part of the stated intent, um, both in internal documents and in the thing itself, is to drive white settlers into the ends of the empire. It's to drive it up into Maine and Nova Scotia and down into the Floridas, with a understanding that these are actually not great places if you are operating on like a settler colonial political economy. Like they're not great for the yeoman farmer family because the soil is rocks and the growing season is five seconds long. Or if you go south, you get malaria. Like it's just not good in the way that like the Ohio country is good. And so in Nova Scotia, um, the uh, the government, the Board of Trade and Parliament had sort of directly stepped in because it, it was it was felt to be politically crucial to uh, settle uh, Nova Scotia. And I mean, I mean, like a big, big Nova Scotia that a Nova Scotia that sometimes also includes parts of Maine that definitely includes what's now New Brunswick, uh, Prince Edward Island. But to settle that area with loyal white Protestant settlers was considered very important to do because they needed the, because of the show's shipping lanes that you were talking about earlier. Um, also some stuff about naval stores that I never quite believe. Um, <laughs> it's just uh, the naval stores thing is it, it's, it's not going to work. It never works anyway. And so they they had actually they the the city of Halifax, my hometown, um, was a parliamentary sponsored and paid for project. And then uh, there was also government funded recruitment efforts in New England to bring families up, sort of immediately after the fall of Louisburg, 
1759, which again, this is being funded by the British themselves in a, in a, in a move that it seems very unlike the British empire, which is why I've always found it so fascinating is that they're actually being like, here's parliamentary money to go do a colonization. So they're doing that. And then by the six, by the time of the proclamation, they've kind of decided that that's too expensive. They keep providing a subsidy to Nova Scotia to sort of keep the lights on, but they want to get out of the business of like directly recruiting settlers. Yeah, that's um, very French of it them is very, to do. Yeah. It's very French, or at least very what the British said the French were doing. Um, because I've mm. also seen documents that are like where the where, where various French people uh in Nova Scotia are like, we as the French uh in Cape Breton, we need to start recruiting settlers because that's what the British do. So it's kind of like both sides mm. are like, <laughs> <laughs> you're the one that's doing government-sponsored colonization, but like no one's doing it very well. Um Empire so I, Envy is a real thing. It is a like, real thing. Yeah. The British are like the Spanish have so much authority. The they, they're such like, a yeah, they're such a smoothly running machine in the 18th century. We should emulate. <laughs> Meanwhile, the bourbon reforms. Yeah, um, exactly. But uh, after the, the so after the proclamation line, there's a move to kind of like try to privatize that colonization. So they're actively recruiting, um, you know, big land companies to come in. They'll give large hundred thousand acre township grants to land companies that will then be responsible for for populating that land. It creates a huge land boom, land rush in Nova Scotia in a way that's impossible in Maine. And I don't think it's necessarily that the, the land is any better in Nova Scotia, because with some exceptions, it's not. Most of the land that's being granted by this, most of the like actually fertile land in Nova Scotia. So like the Annapolis River Valley, where Acadian settlers had been prior to their deportation, uh, that had already been resettled with New Englanders. So most of what's getting granted out is a lot of like rocky, uh, hilly, scrubby land, um, which a great view, but not great if you're like trying to grow <laughs> wheat for export, you know. Um, so uh, and it ends up uh, really collapsing because functionally they can't like they bring people in, but then the people get there and they're like, what the heck is this? I'm not going to live here. This is terrible. And then they leave. And then in, is there in false Maine, advertising like earlier, like when uh, Waldo and some of these other speculators were like, hey, you know, Maine is super temperate and it's mm -hmm. just like Germany. You Land should move here. Honey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, just it's the best. Uh, Anthony Wayne uh, is sent up as a surveyor in what I think is his first job. Um, a very young. <laughs> this is the Anthony mad Wayne. Anthony this Wayne is, this guy. This is mad, okay. mad Anthony Wayne. He does a summer of serving in Nova Scotia and he's like, this is the best land I've ever seen. It's so good. <laughs> it's like, no, it's like, dude, no, it's not. Um, okay, I hope it's not. You're from Pennsylvania. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but uh, and I think that the same thing would have been done in Maine, but it's because of those legal blockages where no one can actually grant that land. And then also the crown feels like they can't fully take it back over without causing a shooting war, essentially, because Massachusetts, because of these proprietors are so tied up in it that it just becomes this like chaos zone. Um, so there's all of this like active activity of recruitment, but none of it really sticks. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, by the 17th, by by, certainly by the outbreak of the American Revolution, um, it's sort of all, you know, sackcloth and ashes. For the Wolstuckweak and Passamaquoddy and the, the Mi'kmaq, what's the, what is the impact of the proclamation of 1763? It doesn't help them at all. Okay. Um, Does it change anything? You said it establishes the basis of their relationships with the crown. Could you uh, elaborate again, on why that's think... so? Or like what that means for them? In Canada, the modern legal entity. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. The So the from a Nova Scotia perspective, because I kind of want to disambiguate Canada and Nova Scotia here because uh, Nova Scotia is its own separate colony. It is not 
no one would have called it Canada prior to Confederation in 1867. Um, okay. It has its own legal thing going on. Um, and the relationship there is based on um, earlier treaties of peace and friendship. Um, so the uh, Nova Scotia dates its relationship to the Mi'kmaq to the uh, 1762. Let me double check the date on that. The treaties of peace and friendship are between 1760 and 1761. So this is yeah. post post the wrap up of active fighting in the Seven Years' War. Um, uh, and this is with representatives of all of the different districts of Mi'kma'ki. Uh, and that is the document that governs still to this day the rela the treaty relationship with the Mi'kmaq. That predates the 1763 proclamation. So the 1763 proclamation is really most important when we're talking about Canada's expansion. And, you know, so for talking about like the prairie provinces, um, areas that were not sort of part of the colonial project prior to this moment. In Nova Scotia, that relationship is already set by other documents, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, other documents that are like all treaties, poorly followed and not well <laughs> respected. Um, but nevertheless, you know, that is that is the basis of that treaty relationship. Okay. And I believe that the uh, the Wolfstuckwick um, are also included in the Treaty of uh, Peace and Friendship. Yeah. Okay. The 60s one. Yeah. And in, in Maine, those people call themselves the Maliseet, but it's for our for our American audiences. Well, Stuckwick is sorry. Well, Stuckwick is the thing they call themselves, but like the exonym that they go by in Maine too. It's the main, the main band of the Maliseet. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's uh, I speak very clearly. Those are the people, um, largely the St. John River Valley and tributaries. Yeah. Thinking about like the how this is received, so there's a lot of the popular understanding, certainly on the the U.S. side of the border, is that for most white colonists. The proclamation of 1763 is unpopular. Oh, they hate it, yeah. Ella, wasn't George Washington really upset about the proclamation of 1763? Well, I think really upset uh, is maybe more difficult to prove, uh, but I mean, largely because George Washington was so concerned with keeping his emotions under wraps, but uh, mm -hmm. he certainly uh, did not view it with great pleasure, um, is what I would say, which was true of many uh, many colonials. Um, so the, 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 the most famous, uh, comment by him that comes up about this is that he, uh, in, in 1767, he writes that he could quote, never look upon that proclamation in any other light than as a temporary expedient to quiet the minds of the, in the Indians and must fall of course in a few years. So, and this was a common sort of train of thought that a lot of people, like they read the proclamation, they were very excited about the parts where you about how you could get land if you fought in the war. Like that was great. People learned of that. <laughs> um, and then they were kind of conflicted about the new colonies. You know, maybe they're you know not going to promote the cause of liberty. Maybe they're a little too despotic. I don't know. Uh, but the bit about the line, people were either very upset or very cynical. Basically, mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of people who, like Washington, were like, "That's cute. That won't last." Um, and Washington's comment is done in the context of him continuing to speculate in lands that are to the west of that line. Mm -hmm. So he was purchasing and in actively involved in, you know, he's an active member of the first Ohio company uh, of, of those lands. And he basically saw that and he was like, this is this is simply not going to stick. This is simply not. I don't need to take this seriously. And that tended to be from my readings. Those are the response. People are either really annoyed at being told what to do or they just like refuse to deal with it at all. Did he, I'm, uh, and to clarify, these land grants that veterans were entitled to, did it have to be land in Quebec or the Floridas or Grenada? 
or could it be in some of these other colonial no like, it could be areas. it could yeah it could be in these other colonial unoccupied areas so oh, i think that um, washington okay. ends up buying a lot of land bounties speaking of washington um all of which were i believe in sort of the pennsylvania virginia quote-unquote backcountry area so no it was okay. all within because there was still plenty of land like and this is a point the board of trade made a lot when when colonists were being salty to them about the about the uh, proclamation line is that there was still plenty of land east of the appalachians that did not have a bunch of settler families living in it uh like the idea that all of the all of the like farming land was completely used up to, to the east of the of the appalachian mounties is just mount mountains not mounties geez that's my canadianism coming through uh was completely <laughs> used up is just simply not true even now, it's not true. Exactly. Like... You drive through these areas. Nobody <laughs> lives there. And it's like, why did we like go through so much effort to steal this? Yeah. <laughs> why couldn't we just let like... <laughs> yeah. But again, you're like, you're not always near a river. You don't have the roads. You don't have the railroads. So like you move out there, you've got good farmland, but where, where are you going to go to sell it? You know, I think some of it too is like your access to those colonial mm-hmm. ports. Like even if you're still east of the proclamation line, you're not always close to a center of commerce or or mm-hmm. even like easily accessible to one. Well, so, once again, to you know, defer to General yeah. George Washington, yeah. the, the answer is canals and yeah, the trade I hub mean, will be Alexandria. Start building them, they'll come, right? <laughs> I would like to exempt Rhode Islanders probably from this this general westward mania since we famously hate driving more than 20 minutes. <laughs> and so I can imagine that in the in the in the pre-automobile era. This was just meant like, well, I'm not going to take my buggy more than an hour any direction. We're staying right here. I never well, leave Rhode Island. So. Also, I mean, there was the wisdom to properly constrain Rhode Islanders to a smaller territory in order to keep them from getting out. So, <laughs> uh, it's true. We are. Uh, we were. We were too large to be an insane asylum and too small to be our own independent country. Well, to uh, uh, to, to uh, quote uh, Francis Bernard again. Um, Rhode Island is nothing but a mobocracy, which must be dealt with. So preferably by annexing it to Massachusetts, but you know. What's the thing you want people to take away? Yeah. Give us your quotes, give us your- One thing and get your quotes in too. Could you talk if there's anybody who thinks the proclamation is a good idea? The Board of Trade. Is that it? Well, and actually, <laughs> actually, I think that that speaks directly to the other document that I brought with me. So I brought my two favorite documents about the proclamation line, okay. uh, hints, which I already read from. And then the second one is the 1768 uh, report um, to the king about Indian affairs and interior settlements. This is another board of trade product. So this is the sort of internal group in England. Most of these folks have never been to the colonies and they, they're, they're thinking about these things very academically where um in effect, what they end up doing is defending the proclamation line. You know, it's 1768. We're several years out. We're already at a point where a lot of people, historians included, have kind of like no stopped thinking about it as an issue. But they've written this thing, basically saying like this is it was a good idea, and this is the foundation. This is the foundation of good colonial governance, right? And so it's really it's reacting to sort of a couple of different things, including these attempts to get these townships in Maine legally recognized, which they're in favor of doing. Um, again, it doesn't really take. They're in favor of doing it, but they if they, we can find a way to not have Massachusetts be in control, because again, those guys are a headache. Um, and it's also uh, arguing against the idea of creating inland colonies. So around this time, there's the Ohio con- company that uh, George Washington is involved in. There's also an attempt to create a colony in sort of West Virginia-ish, uh, delightfully named Vandalia, uh, that people are floating to the Board of Trade. 
Uh, and this is sort of reacting to both as well as talking a bit about um, native, uh, policy around indigenous people. But they really come out in a very full-throated defense of this idea of having the line largely for the purpose, not so much of preserving indigenous lands as much as for restricting uh, your American settlement to the coasts. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone should think that they were trying to be nice. No, you know? that's the big I thing. Mean, it's like no just, one was, they were not being nice. This is not no. a good, this is not like a <laughs> like an indigenous rights move. Like, yeah. absolutely not. Uh I want to be very, very clear about that because yes. sometimes I think it's, it's people will fall into I that. I think sometimes people think like, oh, yeah. this was so like, this was sort of altruistic, but it really, no. it was about, it was about the money. Like it was, it was about the money. all about the money. And I think, um, oh, I forget if it's in this document or the other, I think it's in this document. They have a line where it's like, the reason we don't want white settlers in the interior is one, because then they'll be too far away, but also two, if they're there, they'll ruin our fur trade. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's like a three prong thing. You don't want yeah. another war. You want them buying your stuff at the coast and your fur trade that whatever still exists of yeah. it at that point, you need that revenue too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so I just want to just do this one quote. Um, so they make this argument in here that the reason why we need this line is especially because we cannot trust the settlers to go where we want them to go, that it's a form of sort of social engineering. Uh, because they say that if we if we got rid of this line, essentially that folks would it would, quote, act most powerfully upon the inhabitants for the northern and southern latitudes of your majesty's American dominions, whoever suffering under the opposite extremes of heat and cold would be equally tempted by a moderate climate to abandon latitudes peculiarly adopted for the protection of those things which by nature is denied to us, which is a very clear claim of like we need people in the north and the south because we need trees and we need people to watch over. <laughs> <laughs> it's always about the trees. It comes back to the trees. Um, <laughs> Uh, because we need people to watch over these important shipping lanes. And if we let them move, they would all freaking go to Ohio. They would stop trading with us. They would become independent and we can't have that. So we need this line. So again, that to me is really the the crucial point of the line. And this is something I kind of hammer a lot is it's less about preserving indigenous homelands because it's manifestly not doing that. And more about this attempt to try to um, actively meddle with uh, the, the ways in which white settlement is expanding. They want white yeah. settlement to expand, but they only want it to expand into certain directions. And they do give a specific shout out to Maine in here, which is that they say that prior to the government really getting involved in these sort of engineering attempts um, in the 1740s, uh, that it is well known uh, that antecedent to the year 14, 1749, all that part of the seacoast of the British Empire in America, which extends northeast from the province of Maine to Canso in Nova Scotia, uh, lay waste and neglected. And the only reason that there's anybody there is because we've taken these uh, efforts, these government-sponsored efforts to import settlers and to draw these lines. Otherwise, nobody would want to be there because it's cold and you can't grow anything. It's a pretty damning indictment of Maine and Nova Scotia. It just, really well, is. You yeah, got to force people um, to move there. It's basically, yeah, the takeaway is that the only, you have to force people to live there and yeah. you can't let them leave. Otherwise, they will all go away. And on that note... <laughs> Yeah, yes. I mean they might uh, not be wrong. Like they the population yeah. <laughs> doesn't like hit a million people until like 1970. So, mm. and, and as Nova soon Scotia as like still the hasn't hit railroads come around, people are starting to leave. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Can we close so, with a bit of Florida hate? Did they also was there the perception that like Florida was just like a land of alligators and mosquitoes and. Oh. Florida is yeah. practically impossible to live in because you get sick and die immediately. Right. So like that's even more of a of an issue. And I will say, I also want to close with, with my, my personal favorite bit of um, Womp Womp, uh, Nova Scotia historiography, which I think applies equally to Maine, which is a, which is a, a great book about Nova Scotian economic history entitled Excessive Expectations. Uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah. Hmm. So to close us out, 
how would you hope that, well, people who are learning about the proclamation of 1763, like, why do you think it matters to us in the 21st century, like thinking about colonial history, revolutionary history, and, you know, and all of that? It matters because it creates systems, which we are still in today. Um, it creates a basis for um, negotiation and treaty making with indigenous people that is centered on a central government, be it the crown or, or the federal party, which uh, continues to this day. It creates colonies that uh, continue to exist. It's the origin of Quebec. It's the origin of of a lot about of what we think about as Florida, even though that sort of is short lived. And it also is kind of in many ways, it's the high watermark of the British Empire in North America. It's 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 the moment of maximum power and ambition and optimism. Um, you know, they've won this war, they've taken all of this land, and now they're trying to government, and this is their solution. And it's the reaction in many ways to this solution, which is going to bring us into that second act of the 18th century, which is the age of revolutions. They so just this flew too close to the sun. Like, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Almost had it all. Uh, yeah, it turns out people really don't like it when you tell them where to go. Because um, mm. it does emerge, especially as a, as if that's to Nova Scotia, Maine. Nova Scotia, <laughs> <laughs> preventing uh, people from going to Ohio is the true hubris. Um, mm -hmm. The people want Ohio. Yes, yeah. The people have spoken loud and clear because it does become a specific grievance in the Amer in the uh, Declaration of Independence is that they want people. Uh, one of the things that gets brought up is is British attempts to restrict where they can expand. That I becomes... believe they were going to let Ohio be administered by Quebec. So even if you manage to get to oh, Ohio. Oh, this is without even getting into the Quebec yep. Act. Oh, you got to live next British to a perfidity. bunch of pea Papist. soup eating Catholics. God. <laughs> so, uh, Ella, what are you doing over at, at Mount Vernon that our, our listeners could check out? a lot of stuff, exciting stuff going on over here. So um, I'm the manager of the Center for Digital History, which focuses on um, scholarly informed public facing projects. Um, we have uh, the George Washington Podcast Network. Um, we have a number of really great podcasts that are out, including Intertwined, which is about the enslaved community at Mount Vernon. We have a newer series called Secrets at the Washington Library, which is about books owned by Washington that are held here. That's a hybrid video and podcast series. We will have an exciting new podcast series dropping in March about uh, George Washington's presidency. So keep uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, we are also home to one of the big projects that I have worked on a lot. It's called Argo, American Revolutionary Geographies Online, which is your one-stop shop portal for 18th century maps. Um, so nice. give that a look. See argomaps.org. Um, you know, that's something I'm very excited about. You can find maps from many different institutions uh, have kindly um, allowed us to use their uh, documents from their collections on this site. So you can view in one spot maps from the Library of Congress, um, maps from our collection, maps of the Boston Public Library. Uh, we're bringing in the Clements Library very soon, John Carter Brown Library, even some maps from Library and Archives Canada. So very exciting project. Um, recommend checking that out, um, as well as a number of other smaller projects, which you can find by going to the Mount Vernon website, and you can find us in the library. Thank you so much. We will definitely uh, we will post links to that on our various social media presences, wherever we are found. Wonderful. And um, Ella, it was so great being able to geek out with you about all <laughs> things 1763. Thank you for humoring my Rhode Island slander. Um. It's all right. We, we deserve <laughs> it. We deserve it. You do. It's fair. Yeah. 
Thank you both so much. This was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. And that's our show. Join us soon for our Christmas episode, continuing the now established, hopefully beloved tradition of your friends at Mainly History, now including Tiffany, taking a Christmas movie probably more seriously than it deserves with our returning guest historian of film as well as Christmas film, Vaughn Joy. And so we will be we'll be analyzing a a rare I don't know if it's a gem or not. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, hopefully it's a gem. A rare, underappreciated entry in the career of much beloved Mainer, Patrick Dempsey, aka isn't he Miss McDreamy on on uh, Grey's Anatomy? Is that his name? Um, I wasn't a Grey's fan, so oh, okay. I don't think I can answer that. Okay, well, He's the head guy though, right? I think. Uh, he was a guy. I've never seen an episode of Grey's Anatomy ever. Ever, ever. A lot of talented actors there, and I like Shonda Rhimes. I just don't really watch medical shows. So. Yeah, I think I was just like a maybe a little too young when it came out for it to really be interesting to me. But um, don't let that stop all of you Patrick Dempsey fans from tuning in because it's, it's going to be a good time. And it could be a gem for how bad it is, but it could also be a gem because it's really wonderful. Time will tell. It's true. So uh, in the meantime, Tiffany, where can folks find us? on the social medias if they want to uh, follow along and be a part of the the Mainly Fan community. If you want to reach out, please reach out to our email address, which is mainlyhistorypod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at mainly.history, or you can find us on Facebook at Mainly History. And we are still on Twitter slash X. We are. We're still on it at Mainly History on whatever remains of Twitter still chugging along so yep uh like us send us your send us your questions for us to maybe get to in 2024 yeah we'd uh, love to do a mailbag episode so maybe mm-hmm. just you know history queries mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know pg personal questions mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. whatever and don't forget to rate and review share um you know if every person just told one other person be a lot of people yeah and uh, a lot of those people telling other people would be internationals because we've been we've been developing our the mainly fandom continues to spread uh, around the world. So we've had uh, for some reason the the podcast platform we use gives really detailed rundowns of Germany, uh, and oh. so uh, we we've had a we've had some some interest in the state of Hesse uh, as well as Bavaria. So there we go. So I hope those those listeners are, are enjoying this this holiday season. That's as specific as it gets. Don't worry, we're not like getting, we're not getting <laughs> the like zip codes of the fans. That'll be real weird. <laughs> Join us again soon for Patrick Dempseymas, a very special uh, main celebrity Christmas. I like what you did there. <laughs> All, All right. right, see you soon. Bye.